Hi, I'm Dr. Will Bostock from Cambridge Progressive Medicine. This podcast aims to assist you in taking control of your own health, well-being and happiness using a combination of Western medicine, psychotherapy, thought work and lifestyle. The podcasts are designed to be used in conjunction with working face-to-face with me, but I've made them freely available and you're welcome to listen to them independently. And if you do, I hope you find them helpful. If you would like to work directly with me, you can visit my website at www.cambridgeprogressivemedicine.com. Hello, and welcome to episode 6. So far in this series, we've explored why Western medicine may not hold the key to good health, and how an excessive faith in Western medicine can sometimes be harmful to us. In today's episode, I want to further explore an alternative way of thinking about health. Western medicine gives rise to what is termed the biomedical model of health. According to the biomedical model, Health constitutes, and I quote from Wikipedia, the freedom from disease, pain or defect. So, according to this concept of health, we are only healthy if we are free from any disease, pain or defect. If we buy into this concept of health, it doesn't seem that surprising that so few of us feel very healthy. I don't think I have ever met somebody who has never experienced pain has never had any kind of illness, a cough, or a cold, or eczema, or acne, or something. And what about a defect? Am I unhealthy because of my receding hairline? So surely we should abandon this concept of health, if we ever want to feel healthy. But I doubt you are very convinced yet. Your brain will already be dismissing this out of hand. The human brain likes to defend what it thinks it knows. And if you are listening to this podcast you've almost certainly grown up with a 100% buy-in to Western medicine and with a biomedical model of health. And I'm guessing that the objection is likely to be something along these lines. It's a matter of degree, of severity. If you have eczema, you're just a little bit unhealthy. It's no big deal. It's not as if you have cancer. So you can feel mostly healthy, even though you have a bit of eczema. It's as though there's a point system. You start with 100% good health, and then as you go through life and acquire various pains, diseases, and defects along the way, you become less healthy by degrees. Maybe your hair recedes, that's minus 0.5 health points. Break your leg, it's minus 3%. Develop diabetes, and that's 30% right off the bat. But I don't think this is quite right, and here's why. The impact any circumstance, symptom or disease has on an individual varies from person to person. The same pain, defect or disease may make one person really unhealthy, but have a very limited impact on somebody else. Take the seemingly trivial example of receding hairline. I gave it as a tongue-in-cheek example, but it's not difficult to imagine how it could be a serious issue for some people. 
we can easily envisage how it perhaps may not be a major problem for a 40-year-old man, but may be incredibly distressing for a 20-year-old woman. What if the 40-year-old man is a model or an actor, and a full head of hair is crucial to his career? In these circumstances, it could be a major health concern. Now let's consider the extreme example of diabetes. Diabetes is a very serious condition and increases your risk of multiple life-changing and life-threatening complications, such as blindness, limb amputations, kidney failure and heart attacks. However, some people develop diabetes in childhood, but can still live full, rich and healthy lives. Gary Hall Jr., the American swimmer, won six Olympic gold medals after he was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And the British rower, Sir Steve Redgrave, won his fifth consecutive Olympic gold after being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. We don't generally consider Olympic gold medal winning athletes to be particularly unhealthy. It seems possible to become really unwell because of hair loss, but to remain healthy despite having a serious life-threatening disease. If health is merely freedom from disease, pain or defect, how can this be? Clearly health cannot simply be related to the presence or absence of a defect or disease. The reason that this is possible is that being healthy is not about the presence or absence of disease. It's about how we feel. If we feel well, we are healthy, irrespective of the presence or absence of disease or defect. This is fortunate, since we can learn to take control over how we feel, but control over defects and diseases may be limited. I suspect you're still not very convinced. The obvious objection to health being a product of how we feel, rather than the diseases we may have, relates to length of life. An athlete with type 1 diabetes may be able to run fast today, but they have a condition associated with a reduced life expectancy, and therefore are not truly healthy. The association of health with length of life is a natural one, and is pretty much universal in our society, but it is both unhelpful and fundamentally wrong. It is possible to be completely healthy the moment immediately before death, and equally possible to live for many years in a state of chronic ill health. There is also such a thing as a healthy death, and death is not always the worst thing that can happen. If this were not the case, all of us would be suffering ill health from the moment we are born, since death is a fundamental part of life. Think of a young professional adventurer who dies in a climbing accident. They may be in peak mental and physical health right up until the moment they fall. Maybe for them, dying in a climbing accident is not the worst thing that could have happened. They chose to climb despite knowing the risks. Perhaps they would rather have climbed and died than never climbed at all. Despite their life being short, it was not an unhealthy one. They chose a life doing the thing that they loved and died doing it. This concept of living well and dying well has been largely lost in our modern society where death has become a taboo subject that we try to ignore and avoid at all costs. This is not a helpful coping strategy, and I will address this later in a podcast on its own right. So, we've demonstrated that it's possible to be healthy despite having a serious life-limiting disease, and also in the face of imminent death. How can this be? 
Remember from episode one, we define being unhealthy simply as feeling unwell. And when you feel unwell, you're experiencing a combination of mental and physical thoughts, feelings, sensations and emotions that are unpleasant for you to experience. And that is all. That's all there is to it. Nothing more. What we think, how we feel, our experience of living in the world, is not completely dependent on the physical processes in our body or on the absence or presence of a disease. It also depends on the way we relate to it, on the thoughts and feelings it tends to produce in us. And despite how it feels, when we experience ill health or stressful situations or physical discomfort, our mental and emotional responses to these things are not set in stone. They are not a foregone conclusion. They are learnt behaviours and patterns of thinking. And because they are learnt, they can be unlearnt or relearnt. We can teach ourselves to think better thoughts about our circumstances. And if we think, think better thoughts, we will feel better too. Even physical sensations, such as taste and smell, comfort or discomfort, pleasure and pain, are not completely independent from our thoughts about them. We tend to think that certain sensations are pleasant and others unpleasant, and that is that. We have no real control over which is which. The experience of sitting in the sun is a pleasant human experience, while sitting in the rain is unpleasant. If it is sunny, I will therefore be happy, and if it's raining, I will be sad. But this isn't actually true. What is pleasant or unpleasant to experience isn't set in stone. It isn't a necessary part of the human condition, and it isn't an unchanging fact about you as an individual. We learn it. We are socialised to react in a particular way to particular experiences. Imagine you've recently been diagnosed with skin cancer and forget your hat, and it turns out to be a bright sunny day. The feeling of the sun on your skin might be incredibly unpleasant. Or imagine you're a farmer and a drought breaks at a crucial time. The feeling of the rain on your skin might be the sweetest caress you have ever felt. The idea that the reaction a particular experience produces varies from one person to another is relatively easy to accept. It is clear that different people have different likes and dislikes. Music and art, for example, are human experiences of different combinations of wavelengths of light and sound. The same combinations can make one person happy, another sad or even angry. It is also not difficult to accept that these likes and dislikes are learnt and socially derived, rather than innate. When we travel abroad, for example, we may find that we do not like the food to which we are not accustomed, and we often continue to enjoy the music that we grew up with throughout our lives. The more difficult step is to accept that the reaction we have to external experiences our likes and dislikes, can vary within the same person. And even harder to accept is the idea that they can be consciously or deliberately changed, that we can choose to enjoy certain foods or smells, to appreciate particular types of music, or how we react to certain situations. I may, for example, have a fear of public speaking, and when I talk in public, I get nervous, sweaty and nauseous. It is hard to imagine 
simply being able to choose to not react in this way, to choose to feel joy and elation in front of the crowd instead. But this reaction to speaking in front of a crowd is not a necessary part of the condition of being me. It is learnt behaviour, and it can be unlearnt and relearnt if we have the will and the dedication. It is possible to consciously influence the way we respond to external stimuli, situations and circumstances. To change on purpose how we react, how we feel and what we do in response to the things that happen to us. We can train ourselves to feel joyful both in the sunshine and the rain. If we define health as the absence of unpleasant experiences rather than the absence of defect or disease, it becomes clear how we can take control of our own health. If health is not related to the presence or absence of disease, but rather what we think, how we feel, and what we do about it, and we can consciously choose what we think and how we feel, then we are able to choose good health. I can't really do much about the fact of my receding hairline, but I can consciously change my reaction to it. I can change the thoughts I have about myself in relation to it, and what I make it mean about me. Even if we can't influence the physical circumstances we find ourselves in, we can influence whether these circumstances cause us to become more or less healthy. More than this, through our conscious, purposeful thoughts and actions, we can create a lifestyle that is more conducive to a good physical and mental condition. Stress, anxiety, sadness, poor sleep, poor food and lack of joy all contribute to poor physical and mental condition. Anxiety over our state of health only serves to reduce our state of health. If I can choose to be peaceful about my receding hairline, to not allow it to cause me to become unhealthy, by reducing stress and increasing well-being, this may actually reduce the rate of hair loss. The same is true for pretty much all illnesses. A positive mental attitude is far more powerful than we ever give it credit for. I like to think of this as fake it until you make it. Not only can we choose to be healthy by deliberately choosing how a circumstance, disease or defect affects us and how we react to it, how we feel about it. In so doing, we create the optimum condition for our bodies to heal. We may indirectly reduce the physical impact of the disease as well as the emotional one. If you focus your time and energy on feeling healthy, this will often translate into an improved physical and mental condition. I'll forgive you for thinking that this sounds too good to be true, that we can simply think ourselves into good health. When things sound too good to be true, we automatically assume that they are not true, that it is some kind of trick or a scam. But this is not a quick fix. Learning how to deliberately choose helpful thoughts is by no means easy. It requires work, time and dedication. It also requires an open mind. We must question and give up much of what we thought we already knew. And this is always a painful, challenging process. It is precisely because it's difficult, time-consuming and painful that it feels as though it's impossible. Honestly, if I had listened to this podcast five years ago, I would have thought it was claptrap and I would have paid it no attention. A lot can happen in five years. 
The reason I'm so passionate about this work is because it has helped me immensely in my personal life as well as professionally. It isn't claptrap and it isn't a scam or a trick. You really can learn to control your own thoughts. By purposefully choosing helpful thoughts, you can control how you feel and what you do. How we feel and what we do really are the fundamental determinants of good health, well-being and happiness. I also understand that it doesn't feel like we do have control over how we react to situations, over what makes us happy, sad or distressed. It seems like how we feel depends on what happens to us, that our external circumstances cause our feelings, that health and well-being and happiness depend on the things that happen to us, rather than what we make of them, on things over which we have no control, rather on that which we do. We tend to think that the food we like, or the type of music we enjoy, what makes us happy or sad or angry, are integral parts of us. They are a part of our personality that makes us who we are. We therefore hold them sacred and want to defend them. They are a part of our concept of self, and so we are reluctant to change them. It feels like giving them up involves losing a part of ourselves. This reluctance to change them translates into a belief that they cannot be changed, but really, we just don't want to change them. The problem comes when our learnt reactions to external stimuli become unhelpful or harmful to us. When we find ourselves in an unpleasant situation, we need to be flexible and adaptable if we are to continue to grow and flourish. If we believe fundamentally that we are unable to change, to adapt to the new situation, we will become unhealthy and unhappy. We won't survive. I see people every day who are barely surviving. And sadly, the cards are stacked against us being able to acquire the tools we need to make real positive change in our lives. Not only is the process hard work, difficult and painful, but our human brains, naturally fearful of change and uncertainty, tend to resist and reject this work before it has even started. Despite this, it is possible to overcome our instinct to distrust and reject new ideas, and the rewards of exploring new and better ways of understanding and relating to ourselves and others far outweighs the effort and the pain of the process. If you are still sceptical, don't worry. I think it is normal. I know that I would have been. For me, it took a major life event to force me to question what I thought I already knew, to force me onto a different path. But the path I now find myself on is so much better, and the way ahead so much clearer. It's okay to be sceptical, so long as you continue wanting to learn, expand and grow. Be sceptical, but not rigid, and try to keep an open mind. Maybe this work is not for you. I'm sure it is not going to benefit everybody. But for me, it changed my life around. And I know that that wouldn't have happened if I had not been forced to try it. Maybe it could do the same for you, but you will never know unless you try. So I really hope you'll join me for the next episode, where I'm going to explore further the work we need to do to learn how to take control of our own thoughts and feelings, and introduce the concept of thought work. Thank you.